every first day of the week is a great day in the sense that we have the, the blessed privilege of assembling the name of the God of heaven. And we do that with the intent, as was just mentioned in prayer, of glorifying Him and exalting His name and directing to Him a worship that He so richly deserves. And tonight we have the privilege of assembling on this second occasion today. We had a wonderful service this morning as we sang and prayed and engaged in the other things that, that God has commanded us. And yet tonight, we'll of course also be able to do those things already, and we look forward to a section of studying the Word of God for the next few minutes. As I mentioned already this morning, if you would, please keep in prayer the gospel meeting at the West Sparta Church of Christ beginning next Sunday. Kale was kind enough to mention a number of other gospel meetings as well. I know many are beginning today, and that one begins next Sunday, and yours truly has been invited to be a part of it. So I invite you to keep at any prayers if you would. If you get a chance to come be with us, it's just right there on West Bachman Way in Sparta. Take a left right off 111. It'll be a couple of blocks that are on your left. Lost to the Credits is the title I've given to the lesson tonight. And I think once you see the next slide, you'll perhaps remember rather easily what I have in mind. Have you ever watched a movie or perhaps some other television program and when the end of the program comes, they scroll across the screen the names of the actors and the names of the others who had a part to play in making that movie a reality. And if at least if you're like me, as you look at those scrolling names go by, perhaps only one or two of the very ones at the top, the main actors or at least the main individuals, and all the others, you have no idea who they were. But the fact is, without their effort... And without their contribution, that movie would never have been a reality. All of those who took care of the set, all of those who took care of the costumes, all of those who took care of every other aspect of that movie. And were it not for those credits scrolling by on the screen, you'd have no idea who they were. Lost in the credits. Tonight we're going to study that text that was just read a moment ago from Acts the ninth chapter. Verses 23 to 25 will be our focus or concentration. In fact, in a moment as we begin the lesson, we'll rehearse a bit of the history that brought us to that passage, and then we'll study a lesson about lost in the credits. I hope that each of us, as we conclude the lesson tonight in a few moments, will be able to say, I hope that we are never lost in the credits. In the sense that we have a desire to uphold the glory and the grandeur of the work of God regardless whether or not we are in a position to take that credit for ourselves. For after all, as we're about to study, quite frankly, we are not in that position. This opening slide will be about the history. And so let's revisit what brought us to that ninth chapter in Acts, especially those set of verses in verses 23 to 25. I've tried to summarize it very briefly like this. The conversion of Saul was a monumental event in the New Testament. Because as this chapter opened, when he himself was on that road to Damascus, he had in his possession letters permitting him to arrest those, either men or women, who were of that way. The way we call Christianity. And of course, a bright light shone about him as he got near to and really was very close to arriving at that, that city of Damascus. That bright light, of course, garnered his attention, and he spoke with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he did, 
You may remember the, some of the questions. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Those were the words that Jesus, in fact, issued to him. In verse number 6, in his reply, Saul rather remarkably made this observation. What wilt thou have me to do? As you can see on that slide, Saul was stricken blind. For three days he neither ate nor drank. And he arrived, of course, at Damascus, someone having to lead him to that place. When he arrived there, of course, we and I remember that the God of heaven had directed Ananias to come to him, to converse with him, to share with him, and to prompt him toward obedience. Saul, of course, was very, very, very ready to listen. Ananias put it in these words. In Acts twenty-two sixteen. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And at that point, you and I perhaps, in many ways, that ends our main appreciation of that chapter. Saul became a Christian. I wonder what happened next. Well, that's where our lesson tonight picks up. Could I invite you to notice in Galatians 1, verse number 17, we have a bit of information provided. After he became a Christian, would you note this with me? He stayed with the brethren in Damascus for a short amount of time, the text says. And then from there, he later would mention to the Galatians that he actually journeyed to Arabia. Fascinating to notice, after that he came back to Damascus. If you and I read chapter 9 of Acts a bit too quickly, we may think he was in Damascus the whole time. But in fact, there was a period of time when he took a journey. He was in Arabia for a while. And when he came back, you notice in verse number 20 of Acts chapter 9, this is what it says. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. This one who very recently was an enemy of the cross, who very recently was an ardent opposer of Jesus, now he preached the very message he wants it destroyed. He preached in truth and in powerful character the very message he once, not many weeks earlier it would seem, in fact, had opposed greatly. Somewhat fascinating then to notice in verse number 21, the people's reaction maybe is easy for us to understand. It says, And all that heard him were amazed, and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem, and came hither for that intent, that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? I'm sure if you and I had been in that city, we would have easily understood the nature of that message. Isn't this the same man in Jerusalem who punished these people, and now he's preaching the very one that he once had destroyed? It is with that in mind we close that slide and note verse 22. But Saul increased the more in strength, and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. Let's unpack that verse at least briefly. It begins by saying, Saul increased in strength. Now remember, here were a fairly large number of people who opposed him, were perplexed by him. How can you preach the same message that you had destroyed not long ago? That might have been enough to weaken. It might have been enough to cause to quit many people, but not Saul. It says he increased in strength. There are questions 
their confusion did not in any way dissuade him. Verse number 22 goes on to say, He confounded the Jews. That word confound means to bewilder. They were beside themselves in disbelief. How can you in such great knowledge and such fantastic might preach in defense of what you once had destroyed? Now, that bewilderment, that astonishment on their part brings us to close the verse for one other thing it says. It says he proved that this was very Christ. It would seem to me that that word proving is a very strong word. Isn't it true that you and I are very well aware that there are occasions when in the course of human events, there are matters which are proven. Our students in school learn a lot about that in math classes. Here's a certain mathematical expression that absolutely is proven true. There are no exceptions to it. There are furthermore no ways to questionably look upon it. It is a fact. May I submit, there are other things in our existence that are known to be proven. And yet on this occasion, would you notice with me, the man known as Saul stood before groups of Jews and proved to them that Jesus was Christ. Wouldn't you love to hear his lesson? Wouldn't you love to hear the way he proved it? I submit to you, it was of course using the very scriptures that those Jews knew so well. I wonder how much of the Old Testament Paul could point to and quote from and actually assert to them that scriptures they had so often looked upon in different ways actually spoke about the Christ, affirming in their heart and mind that He was the fulfillment of all of them. Saul proved to them Jesus was Christ. That proof leads us to close that particular slide with this statement. That word proving literally means to demonstrate conclusively. Would you think about the power in that? To demonstrate conclusively. And with that said, let's conclude those thoughts with some of the remainder on this slide. Because that brings us to the lesson text of the evening. Beginning in verse 23, it says, And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. Now remember, he had just proven that Jesus was Christ, but they didn't like that message. They loved to hold on to the old law. They loved to hold on to the law of Moses, for that made them the centerpiece. It made them God's chosen people, and they weren't willing to yet give that up. And so, if you can't do away with the message, you try to do away with the messenger. In verse 23, after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying wait was known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. At this point, you'll notice these Jews were very energetic, so much so that day and night they watched the gates of Damascus. They knew he would have to leave at some point or to come in one or the other, and they were rather ready to take his life, to do away with this one, to absolutely break the law of the land. You can tell they cared not anything about that, though. Apparently they had enough pull, enough persuasion with the authorities, they could in fact do away with this man and feel no threat to their existence because of it. Their desire, stated twice, was to kill Saul. Verse 25 closes our study tonight. 
Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. And at that point, that saga closes. And we are left to appreciate the fact that Saul was safely able to escape Damascus. He did so with the help, with the assertion, with the integrity and the power of these disciples. And did you notice with me, their names are not given. You can begin to see where we're headed. Lost in the credits. But let's study for a minute about these disciples recorded for us here, and let's draw four lessons from them. And as we do that, let's look at the first one. Although you and I do not know the names of these disciples, may I submit to you four things about them that are very great lessons for you and I today. Things about them and their actions, though listed so briefly here in Acts chapter 9. First of all, they were individuals who had a plan. They were known for their planning. Let's develop that in the following way. Aren't you impressed with the fact that here was a man, namely Saul, whose life was under threat and they knew it? Notice again in verse number 23, it says, After many days, Saul had labored here in Damascus for some period of time. We don't know how long. But these Jews and their plot was well known. They knew that they wanted to take Saul's life. These disciples, these precious Christians... They knew very well what the plot was, and the plot was to take Saul's life. And so they made a plan. Did you notice a few of the particulars? First, they had to gather at night. Would you and I have been willing to do that? That's the time to be asleep, isn't it? Can't we find some other time to do this? Why at night? They met at night. Obviously, there was a bit of cover of darkness attached to that thought. But isn't it also true they had to have other things present? Somebody had to bring the rope. Somebody had to bring the basket. Whoever it was that was involved, they made sure all the necessities were there. The rope, the basket, meeting at night, the proper place on the wall, all of it was properly prepared. Needless to say, these disciples whose names we know not were involved in significant planning, perhaps days in advance, to bring to fruition the salvation of the life of this one known as Saul. Let's read further. You'll notice they did a mighty work in the preservation of Saul's life. Have you ever stopped to think, if they had succeeded, those Jews that is, in taking the life of Saul, think about what else would not have happened. How many precious souls were preached to by this man in future years? How many precious individuals will be in heaven because of Saul's preaching and those disciples not let him down over the wall in a basket? That might not have happened. How many books of the New Testament would not have been written if Saul's life had not been spared? Remember, he wrote at least 13 books of the New Testament. And at the time these events took place, not one of them had yet been written. Not one. May I submit to you, these disciples did a great work, though their names we do not know, lost in the credits. But of course, for you and I who love the Word of God, they aren't lost in the credits. For as you and I read a verse like this, we appreciate those disciples and we're thankful for what they did. As you and I come near the close of that slide, let's make an application to us. Do you and I make plans for the success of the Lord's church? 
do we make specific and well-appreciated plans to carry out and even endorse and even encourage by a greater characteristic the boundaries of the works of the Lord? These disciples made plans, do you and I? Or are we too happy to passively sit by and hope that someone else does? They may think that we're going to do it. You see, the point is, ultimately nobody may be making the plans. And that's not good for the work of the Lord. Here at Pippin, we of course want to be those who make proper scriptural plans and who of course look forward to the carrying of those things out. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse number 10, doesn't it there say in description of all of us as Christians, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. The same one who was let down over the wall in a basket wrote that verse. We are His workmanship. That is to say, we are the workmanship of Christ created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? Unto good works. May you and I thus thrill at the thought and eagerly await the opportunity for those good works. Because after all, it may be something that many others may not know about, the letting of a gentleman down over the wall in a basket. But may I submit to you how much good that did in future years and how much of eternity will be impacted by the preaching of the one who was let down in a basket. Perhaps another verse would be this one in 2 Peter 3.18. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Lesson number two. In addition to their planning... Would you note this? They did more than just plan. It's a fair thing to say that maybe their planning was intense. Maybe they carefully recognized what would be the best place on the wall. It's one thing to intend. It's another thing to execute. May I submit to you these disciples, again, whose names we do not know, they did more than intend. They executed these plans and executed them, it would seem, with tremendous success. Let's develop some of these thoughts like this. Those plans that we have previously discussed, the rope, the basket, the other characteristic features attached to this saving of Saul, and yet as they executed it, it brings us to about the middle of that slide. May I invite you to notice how often the Word of God makes a resounding blessing upon actions. I can't think of a single passage referring to the day of judgment pronounces a blessing on those who made intent. I can't think of a single verse. And yet how many times does it pronounce blessing on words like this? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body. Notice it did not say intend, it said, done in his body, whether it be good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. You'll notice in Revelation twenty-two, twelve, 12, it's there highlighted for us that again on that day of judgment, there shall be a reception of those works according to the deeds of the body. It didn't say intense. It's one thing to plan, and that's certainly needful. But we must make sure that those plans emanate into execution. Look at some of these additional verses. In James 1, verse 22, you and I perhaps remember with greatness that powerful little statement. 
James, as he so often wrote in that book, reminding us about the nature and what it's like to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. You and I are urged, in fact, commanded to be doers, those who bring to execution that which is the will of God. That's a good question for us, each of us tonight. Am I a doer or am I only one who intends? May we say, had those disciples merely intended, Saul's life might have been taken. What if the person didn't show up with a basket? What if the one identified to bring the rope just chose not to come? What if he had never followed through? You could see the idea. Perhaps one more set of verses. The one at the very bottom. In 2 Thessalonians 1 verse, verses 7 and following. When Paul wrote that message of comfort, and isn't it true? It's the same gentleman of whom we've just noted. He was let down over the wall in a basket. The same one could say, to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the, Lord, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Paul even insisted to the church in Thessalonica, obey the gospel. You and I appreciate, of course, even today, the necessity, the urgency, and the needfulness of that same idea. The larger lesson, though, for the moment, the execution of intents. May you and I ever understand how needful that is. As useful as it is to plan, let's make sure that we're committed to those plans in such a way that the execution becomes a reality. And with that, we come to lesson three. What else might we notice about these disciples whose names are not given to us? May I suggest this to you? It doesn't go completely unnoticed in the passage, but it is a vital observation. I wonder why they did this at night. For you and I, the answer, it seems, is reasonably easy to ascertain. These Jews were powerful. After all, in cities like Damascus and otherwise, the Jewish religion and these who were of Jewish notoriety, they were very controlling individuals and to oppose them, to resist them, was to bring one's own life under great threat. These disciples sufficiently loved Saul and what he stood for and the gospel which he preached that they were willing to, willing to risk their lives to help ensure the safety of Saul. They gathered at night. I wonder if it crossed any of their minds. What if someone comes by with one of these sources of light and they see us doing this? After all, there were patrols and various other things in the city. What if someone spots us from the inside doing this? What if someone spots us from the outside doing this? They might have been arrested. They might have been persecuted very strongly by those Jews, for after all, the Jews were wanting to kill the very one they were helping to escape. They were, in fact, by these activities, risking their own life. That brings us to lesson three. They overcame that fear. The thing they were doing was important enough, it was worthwhile 
to consider the risk. Let's develop that like this. May I submit to you that you and I may too be called upon to consider fear. And there may be things that go on in your life and mine that we know the world does not approve of. In fact, the world would rather powerfully insult us because of it. We've got to overcome that fear. As we're about to see in a minute, we've always got to do what's right. It's never wrong to do what's right, and it's never right to do what's wrong. When the world encourages those things that are wrong and even calls into suspicion and question what we know is true, our fear has got to be overcome, and we've got to stand with the truth, to stand with the Lord, and to always do what's right. The world may may take a dim view toward it, but that cannot be allowed to dissuade us. Look at this verse with me. In 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27, Paul identified and even spoke about something that you and I must remember rather carefully. Again, may I say, the same one that was let down in this basket wrote this text, and he wrote it like this. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth, For the mastery is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul felt the ongoing urgent need and requirement of never falling astray to do what was wrong, but rather to keep his body always under subjection. How often did Jesus tell his disciples, Fear not. I remember one scene when in fact he was walking on the water in Matthew chapter 14. And again, it was in the darkness of the night. And when they saw this image, this silhouette on the water, they began to fear and tremble. They thought they'd seen some kind of a spirit. The Lord's first words, fear not. He calmed their fears. And may I suggest the Lord today can still calm our fears. Did He not say, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee? The Lord said that, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Borrowing the wording of Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. That kind of confidence and that kind of powerful presence of the Master takes us back to Hebrews chapter 12. Seeing we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every sin and the weight which has so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 12. It's a fantastic thing then to consider that it isn't a wrong thing to appreciate the reality of fear. But you and I as Christians can appreciate the one who is with us is greater than those who are with them. Aren't we taught that in 1 John chapter 5 as well as chapter 4? 1 John 4, 4 and 1 John 5, 4. Our faith overcomes the world. It is with that we close this slide by noting 
when you and I thus commit ourselves to doing the right thing, even in the presence of those forces which can be so strong, we know that our Heavenly Father will be pleased. And not only that, that's the very way we in conviction can motivate in so many ways those that are about us. We highlighted this as we studied the Revelation several months ago. It must have been an overwhelming thing to appreciate and witness and see the faithfulness of these individuals who met their death because they were a Christian. After all, it was a public spectacle, wasn't it? The individuals would gather. Here was a Christian who had been arrested perhaps the previous day or maybe a few days prior. He or she had been very harshly treated and been given the opportunity to relent that name of Christ, but the person would say, I will not. Historically, you and I may remember Polycarp. If memory serves me right, it was in the third decade of the second century A.D. Here was one who, at the age of 86, an aged man, he was arrested and he was prepared to be put to death. And they gave him the chance, if you will renounce the name of Christ, we'll let you live. Polycarp said this, The Lord has been faithful to me for these eighty and six years. How can I turn my back on Him now? And they killed Him. What faithfulness. May I suggest, you and I may consider what a tragic way to die, but... What a great way to appreciate what awaited for a man of faith. Overcoming fear, these disciples did it. And what great work it led them to. What about lesson number four and the final lesson of the night? What else might we say about them? It's been the issue that we've noted several times throughout the lesson. Did you notice their names are not listed? And there's no comment from them even recorded. Only what they did. And may you and I suggest that as often as we note the very writing of Paul and how frequently he directed the credit and the glory to the one in heaven to whom it belongs, that must be our sentiment today. May I invite you to note some of these verses? When you and I become in the business of Christianity and look to make a name for ourselves, trouble will necessarily follow. It's not about us. It's about Him. It is not about your name or mine. It's about His. No wonder Saul put it like this. Later, he was known as Paul, of course. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, he said, Not that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wanted none of the glory for himself. He didn't deserve it and he didn't want it. May I say that must be our attitude and our commitment. The glory, the credit, the fullness of it all belongs to God. Jesus is the one that died for the church, not you or me. He is the one, and of course we must be baptized in His name, not yours or mine. This was the very issue, of course, that began to rear its ugly head in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there were some there who were saying, I am of Paul. And I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. And Paul sternly rebuked them by saying, Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Apollos or Paul? 
And if it's done correctly, of course, the answers are no. And surely we understand it was Christ that died for us. The church belongs to Him, and may all the glory go to Him. In Ephesians 3, verse 21, the same writer one more time said this, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. We are thrilled at the Pippin Church as are other faithful congregations to ensure that the credit and the glory all goes to the Lord Jesus Christ for it belongs to Him. We're just happy and honored to be servants in His kingdom thrilled to be able to use our talents, our time, and our capabilities to carry out His service and His work in every way that He would find pleasing. One other verse that highlights that in such sweetness takes us to notice what began to happen in Acts 5 when some questioned this. All I have to do is mention the names, and you remember them well. A man named Ananias and his wife named Sapphira. You remember with me that they had a parcel of land and they wanted the credit for themselves. And so they only gave part of the money, of course, to the apostles with the hope that they would think that all of it had, of course, been, do been donated. And Peter, of course, first questioned Ananias. And he said, wasn't it yours to do with as you wanted? And Ananias wouldn't even confess it then. Three hours later, his wife came in and Peter questioned her and she too was in on the plot and she died as well three hours later. It is to be noted, when these who sought to make a name for themselves, they lost their life. May I suggest you and I ever appreciate there is no way to be lost in the credits if you're a faithful Christian. For on the day of judgment, everything's going to be known, Luke 12, verses 1 to 5, and it'll be enough if we can just hear Him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. That'll be enough. And there certainly will be no lost in the credits. As you and I close that slide, several additional verses I've asked you to notice, and maybe one of them will be sufficient. And then we'll turn to our conclusion. But that one to which I would ask you to notice, Paul's reference in Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8. Here was one again who was let down over a wall in a basket. And this very same one who would say, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Paul had given it all up. But did he consider himself a loser? Oh, he didn't. He knew that there was a crown of life waiting for him. And you and I, of course, can know the same. And so may I again suggest, as a faithful Christian, nobody will ever be lost in the credits. Let's close our lesson then tonight with that final slide. And in the course of our study tonight, we've reflected on Acts chapter 9 primarily. And as we did that, we rehearsed the conversion of Saul briefly and then cast a spotlight on those unnamed disciples in verses 23 to 25. Though Saul was under threat of death, they, secretly under cover of darkness, using a basket and some other means, helped him to safety. What a great work they did. And so tonight we learn those lessons you'll see at the bottom. The importance of planning, but the needfulness of action as well execution. 
that great lesson attached to overcoming fear just like they did. And finally, the greatness of appreciating that all the credit goes, of course, to our Heavenly Father and to His Son, Jesus Christ. Tonight, as you and I analyze our own life, where do you and I stand? Is there room for improvement? Is there room for direction in the right movement toward greater service with our talents and capabilities to God? If so, let's make a plan. And let's make sure to attempt to execute it, overcoming all fear along the way, and make sure to direct the credit to the one who deserves it. Tonight, if we could help anybody in your obedience to the gospel, realize that gospel call of invitation. If you have never obeyed the gospel, let tonight be the night. The eighth day of April 2018, your spiritual birthday, no greater day could there be than that. Could I suggest, though, that as you recognize the Lord's teaching, you must believe in Him fully, completely, and wholly. Repent of your sins. Confess His name and be baptized. If you've become a Christian, maybe this lesson and those disciples have prompted you to think of things you can do. Make those necessary efforts, giving all the credit to the one again that deserves it. And make sure as you do that to allow God to use you as an instrument in His kingdom in all ways that He's readily able to do. Tonight, though, if you would wish to confess errors in a public way, don't you know that a group of people here love you just as God does and that we'd pray to God for you? You need to confess those things. You need, of course, to repent of them and invite us to pray on your behalf and the God of heaven has promised to forgive you. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. Tonight, if we could help anybody in either, any of these ways, we want to do that, but we'd ask you to let us know the way that we can and do it at once while together we stand and sing.